0: The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration has signed a first-ever data-sharing agreement with a private company, a developer of offshore windmill farms. Both parties have an interest in learning more about what's going on in coastal waters. For the whys and wherefores of the agreement, we turn to NOAA's Integrated Ocean and Coastal Mapping Coordinator, Ashley Chappell. Ms. Chapel, good to have you on. Thank you. All right, tell us about this agreement. What are you trying to achieve here? And uh, tell us who this company is.
1: Well, this is our first ever agreement with an offshore wind energy company, Orsted, which is the North American arm of a Danish wind energy company. And the agreement encompasses a broad range of data types to share with Orsted and from Orsted to NOAA, from meteorological observations to biological data to bathymetric data about ocean depth.
0: Got it. So backing up a step then, when someone builds an offshore windmill, I guess, or a series of them, they're anchored in the ocean in some manner. So they have the opportunity to have sensors and data collection mechanisms about what's going on in the waters in which these windmills sit. Is that the general picture of how it works?
1: Yes, exactly. Actually, these companies have to do a lot of research and data collection even before they head out to the water. They need to get information in on what is out there before they can even start construction. So it's quite an extensive effort, as you
0: can imagine. Sure. And what are the types of data that they look at that are also useful to NOAA?
1: Well, they're looking at meteorological conditions. They're looking at the seabed surface. Can they construct something there? What are the habitats in and around uh, where they might want to place wind energy infrastructure? They're collecting bathymetry, which is ocean depth, as I, as I said, and other parameters around the water and the the habitats, the environments that are there. They are collecting biological data, perhaps about the inhabitants of that area, so as not to um, damage marine life and, and established communities, that sort of thing. And all of that data is useful to NOAA's Ocean Science Research and Operations.
0: And do these companies look at all of this data for a period of time before construction And then do they also continue to monitor those parameters after the project is done and the wind farm is operating? Yes. And in the case of Orsted here, do we know how far offshore they are going to be looking at this data? Is it in deep water? Is it in fairly shallow water beyond where the beach might end? Or where is it?
1: The lease areas that are managed by the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, BOEM, are in the Outer Continental Shelf. So, you know, that location varies. They're about, you know, they might be 20 miles or more, 20 nautical miles or more offshore.
0: Okay, so wind farms can be located that far offshore and, and still get power into the uh, into the land.
1: Yes, they'll be running cables from the turbines to land.
0: Okay, and does NOAA itself have data-gathering activities in those types of far continental shelf waters. I know you've got buoys all over the place and ships and submarines and satellites, but is that a band of the ocean that NOAA itself does data gathering in?
1: NOAA gathers data um, all over our exclusive economic zone waters, but, you know, resources are finite and no one entity can gather data everywhere that, that we would all like to gather data. So the sharing is actually really very appreciated and valuable to NOAA for, for information in places where we don't have data perhaps or you know new data in the areas that we we have data where we can now do change analysis or understand you know what's happening in our
0: ocean. We're speaking with Ashley Chappell. She's integrated ocean and coastal mapping coordinator at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. And the sharing agreement you have, how does it work? They will ship you Thumb drives from what they gather offshore? How does it all work technically?
1: You know, these data sets are of varying sizes. Some are enormous, as you could imagine. Uh, Bathymetric data, for example, is huge. And then some are smaller. Uh, Meteorological data, I think, is pretty petite compared to bathymetry. And so it'll happen in a variety of ways, by email, by uh, FTP transfer, perhaps even by hard drive transfers. Those details will be worked out, and in each case, you know, Orsted will say this is the data that we have available uh, to share for meteorological observations, for example, and we will figure out at that point, you know, the best route to receive it.
0: And you'll be sending them data also, so it sounds like there is some area of data that you may gather that they don't have, and vice versa?
1: Well, yes, but of course all of the data that NOAA acquires is available to the public, so we will be working with ORSID to make sure that they know where that data is and finding it. But that data is available
0: to them, yes. And when does this all start? Are you underway yet?
1: We're underway in, in discussions on some of our first data sets, and we hope to see data actually changing hands by the end of the summer.
0: And how will this enhance NOAA's own activities?
1: These types of data factor into our science and research and the models we use for many different things from atmospheric predictions to storm surge models to nautical charts. You know, all all of this data has value to NOAA and will be used for different things. I mean, these observations, predictions, and information will supplement our own observing systems and data acquisition that we use in our science.
0: Ashley Chappell is Integrated Ocean and Coastal Mapping Coordinator at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. We now bring you a special presentation from our friends at WEPA.
2: Shane, thanks for joining us. Can you tell us about WEPA and your new podcast? Mike, great to see you again. The podcast series Lessons in Leadership what we're trying to do is, is take a deeper dive, a different angle, into the conversation around leadership with great leaders at all levels of government. Uh, since the 1900s, leadership has been studied in a serious and academic way. Uh, great man theory, the leader-follower theory, the inspirational leader, transformational leader, all of these are backward-looking um, development of styles, looking at an individual, figuring out how they did leadership, and then translating it into a form that we can use today to learn, to perhaps emulate, copy. But great leaders, they have more than one style. I think I truly think that a great leader can adapt and transform into the role that's needed at that time. So, what we're trying to do is, is talk to great leaders and go a level deeper. Tell us about your, a story in your past. Tell us an inspiration that really affected your ability to lead others. And this certainly applies in the uh, federal space. The federal government, it's over 2 million employees. Great leaders are throughout the federal government, both at the top and the middle ranks. And what we want to do is Ask them to pull inside their memory, pull inside their personal history, find those moments in time when they were changed, they were inspired, they learned something about leadership from another person, perhaps it was uh, from themselves, and they brought that to the workplace, and they inspired others and became great leaders. So that's what we're trying to do with the podcast. Okay, so I, I get that you wanted to start with leadership, but what makes leadership Such an important topic right now for federal workers. Great question. Leadership today is tested like never before. Um, Today's, if I had to put a leadership style, if I had to put names to it, we hear about um, empathetic, we hear transparent, we hear uh, inspirational. So today we have COVID, we have a down economy, we have people we have social uh, injustice that we're dealing with there are many new factors and it's drawing like never before on a leader's ability to pull from within themselves and adapt to the current change so leadership today is almost brand new again we're taking all kinds of different styles attributes learnings that leaders have they're looking at the current situation that we're in and Understanding how do I move groups of people? How do I move my employees? How do I inspire? How do I get them to the next best place? So I think leadership today, this conversation uh, is extremely relevant, perhaps more relevant than it's been in several decades. You know, we talk about an employee's personal route to growth, but what role does the management side have in this? I think in the federal government, it's it's a little bit different than it is in the private sector. Uh, my father was a civilian federal employee. Uh, he joined the federal government in the 1960s. Uh, John Kennedy, he was inspired by "Ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country." He had opportunities to go in the private sector. That notion of service inspired him. It inspired an entire generation. I would like to think that call to service, which is unique in, in the federal space, in the government space, still exists today. Well, that about says it all. But is anything else you'd want the audience to know about you personally or WEPA as an organization? Uh, I have been uh, around the group affinity insurance world for Um, Three decades. Uh, I've led, this is my second uh, major organization that I've led. And I will tell you that we impart this feeling, uh, you mentioned it, Mike, about service, this notion. We serve those who serve. And uh, I will tell you that it's refreshing. It's a blessing to be there. And I have so much respect for civilian federal employees at every level of government. In this podcast, we're hoping to talk to leaders which are similarly inspired and can share their learnings over a lifetime. And uh, this will be useful information uh, for anybody in government service.
1: Want more ways to show your good side to the world? Donate plasma at a Griffles Center and join thousands of donors who are helping to save lives. Receive up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at grifflesplasma.com.
2: This episode is brought to you by Zell.